Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we start a brand new series in the Gospel of John. It's called Reasons to Believe. So let's turn to the book of John as we ask Dr. John Newfeld to join us now. you to imagine a personal struggle that I have. You know, since I preach five different sermons every week, I'm constantly asking what it is that I should say. But I'm not unique because one of the things any preacher does is to ask himself, what shall I preach? And the question must never be, what will keep them interested? Or what's a hot and relevant topic? Or what would they like to hear? Or what will meet their needs? You know, if one asks the question in that way, I don't actually think it's preaching. All the years that I spent in the pulpit every Sunday, I frequently reminded myself, look, this is not my pulpit. It's not my church. It's Christ's church, and it's his pulpit. It stands at the center of the stage, and it, it represents the place of declaring God's words and not mine. Now that I preach in a number of different settings, which include a word to many people across my country, and also now in a number of countries in the world, the question for me has become all the more significant. What shall I preach? Listen to how the Apostle Paul expressed his own role as a preacher to the Ephesian church. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would see imprisonment there. So this was his last sermon in Ephesus. And here's what he said, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 25 to 27. He says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you, listen to this, the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. I mean, to be clear, Paul said that if he had not preached the whole counsel of God, he would be guilty of the blood of men. So every preacher knows that God will judge him in the end for what he says as well as for what he leaves unsaid. I take that personally. Should there be people who hear me, who after hearing have not been told what God wants them to hear, would not have heard the whole counsel of God, would end up in eternal judgment because of my neglect, then I will incur guilt in their damnation. So when I as a preacher determine what to preach, I've got to ask myself at least two questions. Number one, how do I avoid judgment for my years in the pulpit and now in my wider ministry? And two, what is the whole counsel of God or what is it that God wants all men and women to hear? So let me give you the only answer that I understand. I don't think any preacher is safe from the threat of being responsible for the blood of others if he doesn't give himself to declaring the actual text scripture. Faithful preaching must come out of the words and verses and chapters of the Bible. The preacher must avoid preaching on the topics that that he prefers or the ones that interest him. Listen, it's so very easy to pick out the topics that interest us and then find Bible passages that speak to those very topics. Now, if we do that, then there could be a host of topics we've never considered. See, we must not make our interests and not the interests of God to be our chief focus. See, once we do that, we're straying precariously from declaring the full counsel of God. 
Now, that's not to say that there's not room for topical preaching. I mean, there is. You know, in the same way as there's room for, in your diet, all kinds of desserts and snacks and fun foods and and even the occasional night out at a fast food joint hanging out there with your friends. But if you want a healthy diet, you're going to pay attention to the four food groups in proper proportions, arranging them in a way that sustains the body with health. The faithful preacher is going to make the main course of his preaching a verse-by-verse proclamation following the books of the Bible, following the thoughts of God in precisely the way that the Holy Spirit has given them in the text of Scripture. That is to say, the faithful preacher deliberately limits what he says to restating the message of the Bible as it was originally given. There's a historic precedence for that. I mean, after the apostolic era was complete, the task of the next generation of church leaders was to teach the people of God not their own doctrine, but the apostolic doctrine of Christ. The truth, or or the thing that Jude called the faith once for all delivered to the saints, must be taught faithfully to every generation. Now, having said that, I mean, there are 66 books in our Bible, and that's a lot of material. Very few ministers are going to have the time to go through all the 66 books that are given, and even fewer of God's people will have heard an exposition on every single verse of the Bible. And by far the majority of cases, that's just not possible. So given the mandate to declare the full counsel of God, how's that even possible? I know of some faithful preachers who have made it their life's passion to preach on every single verse in the New Testament. And I must say, I find such a passion to be commendable. But I would not neglect the First Testament. That, too, deserves to be heard. I mean, after all, the entire New Testament is no more and no less than an explanation of the First Testament in the light of the ministry of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come and he's lived and he's died and he was raised from the dead, all the things that we might not have understood in the First Testament, well, they now become crystal clear. And for that reason, I think that we can't neglect so great a revelation of God that was given over some 1,500 years through Moses and the prophets. And that brings me right back again to the question of the whole counsel of God. How can the preacher be faithful to this? I mean, that's the question. Now, I'm going to say something that's very important that I'm understood in what I'm about to say. I want to be careful to safeguard the truth that every verse in the Bible is of utmost importance. God didn't just drop in some verses because he felt like it. There's no filler in Scripture. There are no unimportant truths. All the counsel of God should be known, and that's one of the reasons we here at Back to the Bible encourage people to read the entire Bible through every year. However, some truths are foundational and others build on that foundation. See, in the same way, some books in the Bible are foundational to the whole counsel of God, and therefore, both the faithful preacher and the faithful Christian must endeavor to know those books well. And so, which are those books that are foundational that must be known? I want to argue for four Old Testament books and four New Testament books. The first is the first book in our Bible, the book of Genesis. A careful study of Genesis gives one seminal understanding of the whole Bible. Everything from God as creator to God as redeemer is found in that foundational book. The second is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is an extended sermon preached by none other than Moses himself at the end of his life. In it, he distills the entire law and makes application for the people of God. 
Deuteronomy will bring you close to an understanding both of God's righteousness and also what he demands of his people. The third is the book of Isaiah. Look, I'm not arguing that all of Isaiah must be equally taught, but there are a number of key chapters that form the basis of our hope in Christ. And finally, I would argue that several of the Psalms are essential. Now, why am I saying that? Well, simply this. If you look at the New Testament, you're going to find that the four books that I've just mentioned, Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Psalms are the most quoted books in the New Testament. So in essence, I guess I'm saying that the New Testament itself tells us which are the foundational books in the Old Testament. Well, how about the New Testament? Well, I would argue that God's people should be thoroughly familiar with at least one of the synoptic gospels. So if you don't know what I mean when I say synoptic, let me explain. The synoptics refer to three New Testament books, that is, the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of these books tell the account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And of course, that stands to reason. Every child of God should be thoroughly familiar with Jesus. He's not just the foundation of our faith. He's the object of our faith. But these books are called synoptics because these three books are very similar to each other. At times, they even repeat exactly what the other says word for word at places they're identical. Why is that? Well, this is only a theory, but the theory is that even though these books are written by eyewitnesses of Jesus, at the same time, all three of the authors seem to have had an identical set of notes that they were using in their writing. Perhaps, and again, I, I say perhaps, but perhaps Matthew, who was a Levite and a scribe, took on the spot Aramaic notes of all that Jesus did and said while Jesus was doing it. What if these notes were copied so that all the disciples had a copy? Then at the end of the apostolic era, when it becomes clear that a written narrative of the life of Jesus is needed, the three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, used the set of notes as a baseline for what they wrote. Now, if that is the scenario, it explains what we have in the synoptics and all that to say, at the very least, every believer ought to know at least one of these documents very well. That's foundational. Life Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019 for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh Again, Truth, bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. More than once in my ministry, I've encountered people who ask, but why are there three synoptics? Why isn't there just one narrative of the life of Jesus? Well, in truth, even though the three synoptics are very similar, 
A closer examination reveals that they tell the story of Jesus from a very unique perspective. Matthew tells the story by tying Jesus to the Old Testament, showing how he fulfills all that scripture prophesied. And Mark is the shortest of the three, and he probably addresses a Roman audience who wanted a shorter and more compact and a more action-oriented gospel. And Luke, on the other hand, is most likely not a Jew, but wrote his gospel using a detailed interview process of all the eyewitnesses of Jesus, and, and he helps us focus on the humanity of Jesus. Luke is also interested in the outcasts as, as well as the women, and he also pays attention to the unique aspects that the Holy Spirit played in the ministry of Jesus. And furthermore, both Mark and Luke are more chronological in their presentation of the life of Jesus than is Matthew. Matthew often arranges the events of Jesus in a topical order rather than in a chronological way. And so even while there's a great similarity between the three, there are differences. Imagine three witnesses to a car accident. One's driving directly behind the accident, and the second is walking along a sidewalk where he sees it, and, and the third is standing on an overpass when he witnesses the accident. So all three see the same thing, but their unique perspective gives context and details how much better to have three witnesses rather than one. And all that's to say that it's obvious that every child of God should be thoroughly familiar with at least one of the synoptics, and therefore every preacher should at the very least thoroughly preach through at least one of these in his ministry. Second, all God's people should be familiar with the book of Romans. See, that's essential because Romans is an extensive overview of the preaching of Paul. Look at it this way. When Paul wrote the letter of the Romans, he'd never been to Rome, but he was coming, and God would provide a way. In order to introduce himself to these believers in that city, Paul writes this letter to help the church understand what it is that he preached in every place where he established a church. And so Romans is the basic gospel that every church should have. For that reason, it's foundational. Third, every Christian should be familiar with the book of Revelation. Revelation forms both the basis of living faithfully in a hostile culture as well as living expectantly. Christ is returning soon. It will teach us that our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world, but rather than the kingdom of Christ. And so I've given Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, some of the Psalms, one of the Synoptics, Romans, and Revelation. But to that list, I would add one more foundational book, and that's the book of John. Why is that? Those of you who know your Bible well will know that John was written sometime after the three synoptics were written. Mark was most likely the first of the four Gospels, written sometime in the late 50s. Mark wrote under the oversight of Peter. Matthew was written in the late 50s or early 60s, as was Luke, who, by the way, was directly responsible to the Apostle Paul. All three of these Gospels are called synoptics, that's because they include many of the same stories, sometimes using even identical wording. These books are basic. John was written last sometime in the early 90s. When John writes, you've got to assume that he's writing to the emerging next generation of Christians, as the apostles had by then all passed away. John alone is left, and he's an old man. But why write one more gospel? Well, one thing's clear. 
John assumes that his readers are already familiar with the account that is described in the Synoptic Gospels. His readers know the life of Jesus quite well. Well, if that's the case, let's ask again. What's the point of one more book on the life of Jesus? I mean, we've already got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Shouldn't that be enough? Well, the book of John is a book that tells the story of the life of Christ, but it's a unique book. Let me try an illustration. Suppose you have one day to spend in one of the most famous art galleries in the world. It might be the Louvre in Paris or the British Museum in London or the Metropolitan Museum in New York or or what have you. But you're not going to get back there anytime soon. You've only got one day. What would be your approach? Because as it turns out, you can't get it all in. See, one approach might be as quickly as possible, try to get as much in as is humanly possible. You've got a a plan. You won't spend too much time in any given area, but you're going to get a sense of the, the grand nature of the whole. Another approach would be that you simply agree that you can't see it all, so you target several key rooms and you give yourself all the time you need to soak those areas in. So which approach is better? Well, that's hard to say. Both approaches have so much to commend themselves. Now, with that illustration in mind, let me read to you the very last sentence in the Gospel of John. I'm reading John 21, verse 25. It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John's saying that the life and times of Jesus, including what he taught and did and how he died and how he was raised, as well as the significance of those events. Well, that's so vast that what we have only scratches the surface. And yet, the Holy Spirit was pleased to only give us as much information as we have. So let me get back to the illustration that I've given of the person visiting the Louvre in Paris. He's only got a limited amount of time. See, when we read the Gospel of John, we find that John is very different than the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First of all, John leaves out a lot of material covered in the synoptics. So, for example, there are no parables of Jesus in John. There's no account of the transfiguration, of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. There's no account of casting out even one demon. There's no mention of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. John clearly is not intent of covering the same material one more time. He's not going to do a vast overview of the life of Jesus. He's going to concentrate on only several key areas. Now, having said that, let's also notice that there's a lot of material in John that you will not find in the other three. It turns out that before Jesus ever drove the money changers out of the temple during Passion Week, well, did you know he'd already done the very same thing once before? Only John mentions that. And furthermore, only John mentions that Jesus changed the water into wine at a wedding. He alone mentions Jesus with Nicodemus, Jesus with the woman at the well, so on. John doesn't even begin with the story of Jesus' birth. He simply tells what Jesus' coming to the earth actually means. And in fact, this is fascinating. One half of this book is taken up in just one week in Jesus' life, the week of the crucifixion. And furthermore, whereas the synoptics seem to focus much on the public ministry of Jesus, John contains a lot of one-on-one encounters of various people with Jesus. John records his lengthy disputes between him and the Jewish religious leaders down to the details of what was said. 
And furthermore, John is very interested in massive theological themes like the identity of Jesus, the nature of saving faith, what and why some became followers and others did not, and what was theologically accomplished as Jesus suffered during Passion Week. Wow, so what's John getting at? Now, that's the right question. And in case you didn't know, John tells us. Listen to John 20, verses 30 to 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. See, John is going to point out that there are different kinds of believing. John wants us to know what genuine faith in Jesus looks like. He also wants us to know what the real identity of Jesus is so that we might believe in the true Jesus. And John wants us to understand how genuine faith arises in the human heart. John wants to help people who were raised on stories of Jesus get to real, identifiable, and genuine faith. And that's why the book of John is one of the foundational books of our faith. John will challenge us who have never physically seen Jesus to know if we have genuine faith. So stay tuned. We're going to study John and help understand what it means to actually believe in Jesus. You're going to find out whether you're a true follower or whether you're just deceiving yourself. It's so important. This book is foundational to what it means to be a follower of Christ. John, it's interesting because so many new believers are directed towards the book of John. But I think if you go right there, there might be a little bit too heavy or might be a too theological. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think the book of John, on the one hand, has this elegant simplicity to it. So it's very easy to read and to understand. And because John is always driving us back to the issue of faith, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons we give it to a new believers. We say, you know, a faith is the issue. You need to trust Jesus. But we need to understand that sometimes we say these things without context. So, you know, as I've said, you know, John has nothing about, you know, the virgin birth, for instance, and, and all of the staple of the stories of Jesus are missing. I mean, we don't even know who John the Baptist is in the Gospel of John. I mean, he just mentions him in passing as if we should all know. So, you know, there's so much we should already know. So, I, I love John being given to believers that have come to know Christ. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us right here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. 
please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.